It would be great if you had a Bible to open it up to that passage we had read, Romans chapter 10. Uh, I've been asked today to speak about what are we to make of Islam. Uh, I might start with a story. This happened to me a few years ago back in Melbourne where I was uh, invited by a young Somali guy, really bright young university student, to come to a lecture on Islam. It was an outreach meeting where Muslims were supposed to invite their friends along and hear a guest speaker. There was an American who'd been wheeled in to explain Islam to people. So I went along with him to Broadmeadows, which is a bit like, we lived in the inner city, it was a bit like going out to Rudy Hill, miles out in the sticks, in a very, very Muslim suburb. It's about 50% Muslim out in Broadmeadows. Went to the town hall where the meaning was, and I walked in with my friend and the main, well, the floor section, there were about 500 Muslim men there and we sat there and then there was women around the balconies, not sure how many women there were up there. But I was sitting down on the floor with the 500 Muslim men and the speaker starts speaking. After about half an hour or so, he stopped and he said, look, if there's anyone here who is not a Muslim, can you please put your hand up? I'm just, so I sat there thinking, you know, this is not really what I was wanting to get myself into. I was just going to fly under the radar, check it out. But I was sitting there with my friend and he knew I wasn't a Muslim, so I thought, oh, I better put my hand up. So I put my hand up, looking around. There were ten hands that went up. Um, the speaker then said, right, I want you to put your hand down if you don't believe in God. So five hands went down, so there were now five of us with our hands up. And he said, right, I want you five to come up the front. Really don't want that to happen. Anyway, so I went up the front and they put five chairs on the stage next to the speaker. Now, up, up till now, the speaker hadn't mentioned Muhammad. It's all just been about trying to convince us that God was real. Nevertheless, he went to the first person. I was at the end, or five chairs, and I was the last one. And he went to the first person, do you believe that Muhammad is a prophet? Or is the prophet? And that person said, yes. Went to the second person, do you believe Muhammad's a prophet? Yes. Third person, yes. Fourth person, yes. So then he comes to me. And I'm about to be the only person in the hall who's going to stand up and say, Muhammad's not a prophet. Um, which I did. And there was a bit of murmuring. But he said, that's okay. This guy's on a journey for truth and what we are on about here is truth and the truth about God. And then afterwards, he gave me a show bag, had a Quran and some DVDs and some books in it and then I was surrounded by maybe 10 Muslim guys and we were just having a theological discussion about what is true. Um, if we're going to answer the question, what are we to make of Islam? Um, it's important for us, I think, to... Well, there's a lot I can be saying but we need to work out who the we is in the what are we to make. So if the we is um, what are we as citizens of Australia to make of Islam, uh, then we need to recognise that Islam is an aggressive, dominating political ideology. Um, there's a real sense that my nervousness there was uh, appropriate I got out of there okay and most people there are fantastic but there are people 
a radical Islamist, and that is real and it is ideologically driven and they do have a takeover agenda and that's a true thing. And we need to be wise about how we handle that. Um, if the we is we as citizens of Sydney, then we need to encounter Islam as a very, very strong social system. Um, there are Muslim communities here and they are uh, wanting to be independent. They're wanting to be under Sharia law in the way that they do what they do and they're very tight-knit. Many of them are in great need. There are refugee communities, uh, people who've suffered a great deal. And as people who host those communities, we need to negotiate, how do we do that? How do you host a community that lives by very different frameworks, very different values, but is in very great need? But the we I want to address today is the we who are the citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, because I'm guessing that most people in this room, that's who we are. And how we are to, or what we are to make of Islam, I think the best way of explaining what we as Christians are to make of Islam is by looking here in Romans chapter 10, because it seems to me that um, perhaps the best way to think of Islam theologically is that the Muslims today are like the Pharisees, the Pharisaical Jews of the New Testament. They are people who in the words of this chap, uh, chapter 10 here in Romans, they are people who are living by a law righteousness um, and not a grace righteousness. Um, there are three things I want to say about Islam that come out of this passage. And the first one is that um, Islam is a tragic bondage for people. Uh, let's read verse 2 and 3. Again, Paul's talking about Judaism here, but you could just as much say that it's about Islam. Verse 2. I can testify about them, about Muslims, that they are zealous for God, but that their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You hang around with Muslims, particularly Kini Bini Muslims, you'll work out that they have a zeal for God and particularly a zeal for God's righteousness, and in fact, mainly a zeal for God's righteousness. A Muslim won't expect that they can personally know God, not a zeal to have an intimate relationship with God. They think of God, he's the lawgiver, and he's given a whole heap of laws, and if you keep those laws, if you are righteous, then he may forgive you in the end. Their passion is for God's righteousness, and they're zealous for it. Um, and not only that, they also believe that we can pull it off. So they don't believe in original sin. So as long as you work hard enough, as long as you're obedient enough, as long as you do enough of the things, then you can be righteous in God's eyes. They think that you can walk up and stand before God on the last day and point to your achievements and that hopefully that will please him enough. The tragedy is that even in Islam, that doesn't work for people. And even though the rules are fairly practical for the most part, even Muslims know that they can't pull it off. And it becomes this oppression. Law becomes an oppression and a bondage that they live after, year after year. And most of them are afraid. They're afraid of meeting God. Let me give you one little example. We worked with Somalis. For most Somali women... Uh, they get married when they're about 17 or 18 and then they start having kids. And so we met 
Uh, we, we knew women who were maybe 30, 32, and they had six kids. Um, now, in Islam, you're supposed to fast. You're supposed to do Ramadan, fast one month of the year. But if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, you don't have to fast. You're not supposed to fast. Um, so what that means is we knew women who, they were maybe 30 years old, and they um, had been breastfeeding and or been pregnant for the last 12 years of their life. You don't have to fast, but you have to make it up. So the women we knew that literally had years of fasting to make up. They didn't see that as a great joy. That was a huge burden. But even if they caught it up in one go, they'd be fasting for more than a year. They didn't like it, but what else can you do? You just have to, that's what God wants. You have to do it. It's an oppressive life and it's a powerlessness. The law's, law has no power to transform hearts. It just tells you what you have to do. There's another passage I often uh, refer to when I'm thinking about how Islam, how the mindset is. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. You can look up if you like, but I'll read it out. Um, this is again Paul trying to argue here. Why would you turn to a law righteousness when you have grace? And he's saying... Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Again, talking about Judaism. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That's the life of a Muslim. They're following these rules and it appears wise to them there is an appearance of wisdom and even in churches we have this tendency, we just like rules. We can go to rules very quickly because it feels religious. And if you ever walk into a mosque um, and line up with hundreds of men and see the prayers, you'll feel the power, the attraction of, wow, this is religious, this is austere, this is worship. It's a very powerful attraction that if you do this, if you don't do that, a very powerful attraction, but no value in restraining sensual indulgence. There's no power to laws. Um, there was a guy we knew, he was, he was an alcoholic, basically. And about every month he would become a Muslim again, or, or become a good Muslim. So he would drink for a month and then he'd say, right, I need to be a good Muslim because that'll fix my problem. And so one month he might not drink very much and then he'd be drinking again and then he'd become a good Muslim again, and then he'd drink again. And it was just this cycle where he was so desperate for righteousness, but Islam gave him no power to change, other than you must, you must, you must. He was powerless, had no power to restrain sensual indulgence. In fact, all you can do with the law is enforce it. Laws don't, don't, they don't create anything. They describe what you're supposed to do, but in the end they're just enforceable. And Islam is an enforced faith. And this is one of the reasons they're happy to use violence to achieve their ends because they think, well, it's for your own good, guys, but there are laws and they're divine laws and they're for everyone and we should just enforce them and it might be a bit painful and we're a little bit sorry about that, but that's what it is. It's about rules. So there was a friend of mine, seriously, one, and this might help you get inside the mindset of um, the Islamist. Generally, one of the most gentle and friendly um, young Muslim men that I knew, and I was, um, I knew his brother, and I was sharing Christ with his brother, and he said to me, "Look, 
Um, you know, if my brother becomes a Christian, I'm going to have to kill you. Um, and I don't really want to do that because I like you and we're friends and it's a real pity, but what can I do? God, it's just bad because you're turning people away from God. That was his mindset. He was a lovely guy. But it's the rules. What do you do? You enforce the rules. Muslims live under this bondage to law. Islam is bondage, and it's also an inoculation. It's an inoculation to the gospel, to Christ. There was a guy there, a young guy, Abdi, and I ran into him outside this gym where we did our youth ministry for a while, and he, um, he had a T-shirt on that said, I love Jesus because I'm a Muslim. And then on the back it said, and he was too. And I said to Abdi, oh, that's a great t-shirt, Abdi. Tell me, what do you love about Jesus? <laughs> What's your favourite thing that Jesus said or your favourite thing that Jesus did? And he just sort of smiled sheepishly and said, I know we're just giving away free t-shirts in the mosque. But it's not just free t-shirts at the mosque. Um, Muslims don't know anything about Jesus, but they think they do. They think that they know Jesus and love Jesus and the Jesus of the Quran. The terms there, he's called the Messiah, Jesus of the Quran, the Christ there is his virgin born and he does miracles and he ascended to heaven and he's going to be part of the judgment day. But that's it. There's no substance. to. They don't know anything about what Jesus taught. They don't know anything about what Jesus did. And not only that, those few things that they know and they think we really honour him, he's one of our prophets, he's fantastic... The problem is all those things I've just mentioned, virgin birth, miracles, ascension, um, coming to judge, they're all great things to have in a Messiah, possibly even necessary things. I'm not even sure about that, but they might even be necessary. But they are none of the things about a Messiah that deal with our sin, that save us, that offer salvation. They have a Christ, and so they think they know and love Christ, but the Christ they have is not the Christ that they need in order to be saved. That's the Christ in Romans chapter 10. In verse 9 it says uh, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Messiah we need is one who is divine and who died for our sins and was raised for our justification and secured our salvation. And they are the three things that Islam denies about Christ. They say they love him, but they've thrown out the important stuff. And that inoculates Muslims from hearing the gospel because they think they already know about him and they think they love him. Again, they're trapped in a law of righteousness. Let me uh, reshape one of Jesus' parables, just in case there's any Muslims here today or people who don't quite get the difference between law righteousness and grace righteousness. A few years ago, when I was at uni, I was invited to a passing out parade. I don't know if anyone here has ever been to a passing out parade. It's like a military graduation. My friend didn't tell me, however, that it was a black tie event. It's down at Jervis Bay at the Navy, Navy base. They're a beautiful place. So we get there and he says, where's your, where's your dinner suit? We, me and my friend who came, we didn't have dinner suits. 
But he said, that's okay, there's my cupboard, there's some uniforms in there, see what you can do. So we opened up the cupboard. The problem was my friend was about this short. But anyway, I found some black pants, some navy pants, and sort of pulled them down low so they didn't look too bad. I had running shoes, that was a little unfortunate. I also had a white shirt, had stripes on it, but I thought that might not be too bad. Found one of his jackets, pulled off the epaulets and slung it over my shoulder because it wasn't going to fit. Um, and then made a bow tie out of cardboard and coloured it in with black texture and stuck it on with sticky tape. I don't remember what my friend was wearing. All I remember was looking at him and thinking, at least I don't look like that. So it gives you some indication. Anyway, so we turn up. Uh, we go to the reception, this beautiful mansion, and then at the top of the steps is the admiral of the base greeting people. So there's Tim, who's a naval officer, the, left, the lieutenant, and, um, and us two, and we walk up the steps. And we get to the top, and we meet the admiral. And admiral, he doesn't say anything, he just stands there, and he looks at us, and he looks at Tim, just like this for a while. And then he just says, Lieutenant Pyatt, are these two with you? And he sort of hung his head in shame and said, yeah, they're with me. And the Admiral stood there for a bit more and then he just waved us in. Now that's the difference between law righteousness and grace righteousness. We didn't deserve to get in. We weren't prepared for the banquet. We tried some stuff, but it really wasn't going to pull it off and it wouldn't have worked for me to say, well, at least I'm dressed better than him. Didn't help. We weren't worthy of it. The only thing that got us in was we had a personal relationship with the insider. Um, And when we stand, when any of us stands before God on the last day, We'll be there and the only thing that will get us in is Jesus saying, oh, I've sorted it. These works are not enough. They haven't, they're not clean enough. They didn't keep enough of the rules. They didn't pull it off. They're with me and I know they're embarrassing and I'm sorry but no one here is doing Jesus a favour by standing there with him other than making his grace look good and his forgiveness look good. Islam is all about trying to impress God by keeping the rules. Christianity is all about knowing God personally and being welcomed in by the Son and we're with Him, we're with the Son. Now the tragedy is that Islam inoculates Muslims. They think they know Jesus. They've got no idea. They don't know Him personally. Islam's a bondage and it's an inoculation but also, and here's the thing for us, Islam is the church's and I mean the global church's greatest mission challenge. We're here asking, what do we make of Islam? Um, Islam, it's asking us a question. Where is our heart? Paul here in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Uh, This whole section here, 9 to 11 in Romans, it's all just Paul crying out to God for his people, for the Jews. And he longed for them to be saved and wherever he went, the first thing he did was go to the synagogue and preach the gospel to them and it was a risky thing for him to do and he suffered, he was persecuted for doing it but that was his heart. The question for us is where is our heart? Does our heart reflect God's heart for Muslims? Because here's the thing, um, 
I think CMS now calls people gospel poor rather than unreached, but about a quarter of the world are gospel poor. About a quarter of the world have yet to meaningfully or deeply hear or understand the gospel and most of them are Muslims. Most of them are in the 1040 window. That's the mission challenge for the church in this generation is will we reach Islam? Will we reach the Muslim world? And here's the thing, only about 1% of missionaries are working with Muslims. 1% working with a quarter of the world that are unreached. Um, there are more missionaries in Kenya than there are in the Muslim world. I went to Kenya, my wife's from Kenya. When you arrive in Kenya, well, when I got there, there was Christian country music playing in the airport. That customs person asked me if I was born again. Um, and there are more missionaries there than there are in the Muslim world. I even hear that there's more in Alaska than there are in the Muslim world. I don't know how that works. But what's that saying about the state of the heart? Our heart as a global church. Uh, and for us personally, how does that challenge us? It's easy for us to reach our neighbours and our friends and our families, but what about Muslims? Muslims in your workplace or university or your neighbours? They're much harder to reach because they're often not very pleasant. They're aggressive. What state's your heart in? It's a mission opportunity. And the last thing I want to say, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness to everyone who believes. For everyone, the everyone who believes, many, many Muslims are coming to faith. I reckon it's really easy, and I think I a bit had it like this, where I had, didn't have two categories of people, I had three. I had believers and then non-Christians and then like really, really hard non-Christians who wouldn't possibly want to... It would be so hard they couldn't come to faith. And the Muslims, they're usually over here. They're the really difficult, aggressive, hard to share the gospel with people. And there's some truth in that, but Muslims are flooding into the kingdom. A friend of mine runs a church in Melbourne. About a year ago, two Iranians turned up and they were interested in Jesus. And they brought some friends, and their friends brought some friends. Um, they had baptised 90 Iranians in the last year in their church. Um, I'm not sure how many people you've baptised in this church in the last year. But there is far more chance of becoming a Christian in Iran in the most or one of the most oppressive Islamic regimes than there is in Australia. Uh, Muslims are coming to faith and in many places there are revivals happening. They're flooding into faith. Um, and they're not that hard to talk to. Muslims are more than happy to talk with you about God. Um, and I, when I have time for questions, and I could tell lots of stories, I'll just tell one, one story. Um, this is how one of my really good friends, his name is Mustafa, this is how he came to faith in Christ. He was a Palestinian he was a terrorist as a kid, or he was trying to be. He was 15 and he joined the Muslim Brotherhood because he couldn't work out why his people had been oppressed for so long and no one cared and the Muslim countries around them didn't care. Um, eventually, in fact, his dad put him in, got him locked up by the police to try and get him out of it. Eventually he realised that ter the terrorists were doing a lot of talking and not much thinking and he thought, they're not getting anywhere. Eventually he comes to Australia um, to do a master's degree. And he got sick 
very soon after he arrived and he was hospitalized. And then one of his lecturers, this guy's name's David, he's a Christian, he came and visited him in hospital. And most of us were sitting there in bed and the lecturer turns up and he says, what are you doing here? You hardly even know me, why are you here? And this is what David said. And look, anyone here in this room could pull this off. This is not super sophisticated evangelism strategy. You don't need to do a course to do this. But he just said, well, I follow Jesus and he loves people in need and he calls us to do the same and that's why I'm here. That was it. Didn't do a course on how to evangelise Muslims. And most of it just said, that's it. That's the heart righteousness that I've been looking for all my life. Got out of hospital, Googled, find out about Jesus. Second thing that came up was the Baptist Bible College and he cancelled his course and went and enrolled in a Masters of Theology and became a Christian about a month, a month later on. Muslims do and are, do come to faith and are coming to faith. They are part of the everyone who believes. Before we have questions, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. If you would like to, you don't have to pray this, but I'm going to ask you to pray a very simple prayer, which is, Lord, please give me your heart for Muslims. I don't know what that will look like for you. I'll give you two examples of what it looks like in people I don't know. One is a woman who was at a church like this in the US, had a talk like this and thought, wow, what am I going to do about it? She was elderly, couldn't really go anywhere, had a lot of money and she said, right, I'm just going to sink serious cash into reaching the Muslim world. And she, at last count, has given more than a million dollars, I think, to the program that sponsored me to do my research. Um, but one other guy, another friend of mine, who um, I met him doing Arabic, where he was a physio and he was working, well, he realised he had a bit of spare time and there was a refugee centre near him, so he just went and gave one night a week, giving physio to refugees. Worked out they were Muslims, thought, you know, I don't, um, I don't know very much about Muslims, I'm going to go along to he came to our church because we were working with Muslims and he thought, I'd like to get to know how to, how to engage with these guys. He thought, it'd be nice to be able to say hi to them. Why don't I go and do some Arabic? So he does a year of Arabic and then he keeps going, does three years of Arabic. And then he thinks, well, hang on. Um, I really enjoy this stuff. I can speak Arabic. I've got a degree that will get me into the Muslim world. So he applies, doesn't bother with missionary stuff, just goes to a medical um, professional placement place um, and six months later, he's in, I won't say where it is, but the most Muslim country in the Middle East. A few months after that, and he's working in the main hospital, a few months after that, the king gets sick and they pull together a small team, medical team, and he's on that team and he's there with his hands literally on the king. Um, it's a very little step. Hey, I can, I can give an hour or two here during the week. And then he's got his hands on the king. Who knows? It's a risky prayer. It's a risky prayer if you want to pray that prayer. Um, but I'm going to pray it. Please pray along with me and then we can talk a bit more about it. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you that... He came 
as your son. And he died for our sins and he rose for our justification. And that through that, we can know your grace. We can have a relationship with you. And we can know that our works, even though they're completely inadequate, and despite that, you'll still accept us and you forgive us and that you love us and you assure us that we can be with you on that day when we meet you. Lord, please pour out your Spirit on us and give us your heart for, in the big picture of the Muslim world, give your church um, your heart for the world so that we can wrap our minds and our wallets and our resources around reaching so many unreached people. But Lord, personally, give us your heart for Muslims and show us what that means for us. Lord, we long for Muslims to be among those who are the everyone who believes. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions? I can come around to you with this microphone. Um, Hi, my name's Jeanette and I've worked with Muslim women um, who have been in distress Mm -hmm. and they asked me to to help them put together a web page and one day um, I just got to a point where I said I don't understand Muslim enough to help you any further on it and they live Western Sydney and within an hour they're at my home with the Koran, a pile of books, some perfume, a bunch of flowers and um, every month or so they send me another email or send me something as if they're, well, they're trying to convert me to Muslim. Sure. And, you know, they're very open and I have talked with them often about what I see the difference is. But I feel helpless that I have nothing that, I mean, I can see what they're doing is all set up by the their religious leaders. They've provided with these emails they send every month which have a link to a wonderful sermon or whatever it is. Do we have anything like that that can help me share more about Christ with them? Sure. Look, there's a heap of resources out there and depending on what uh, sort of background they're from, there are various studies that are written for those sort of guys. But um, at the end of the day, I think for you personally... The goal should just be just um, just tell them what you love about Jesus and ask them if, if they'd be willing to read one of Jesus' stories with you. Um, I said before that um, Islam is very the way they think is the way that the Pharisees thought, and the good thing about that well, that's not the right way of putting it. The the advantage that or the window of opportunity that that is is that pretty much everything that Jesus said was spoken into that sort of mindset, into that religious pressure, peer pressure community, that whitewashed tomb thing, the whole thing, shame and honour. Um, so any one of Jesus' parables, anything that he says uh, is the right thing to say. And just it'll be your love that carries that as well. It'll be the integrity of you living a Christian life before them over time that will open the opportunity to be able to share that. But yeah, let them, let, just say, okay, I'm happy to listen to this if you are willing to read this with me. 
they tend to be all over Australia, so I often don't get that face-to-face -face situation. Right, sure. And oh, well, you can send them a link. There are some, again, depending on where they're from, there are online things that you can do that. But um, I can tell I'll you later. You but yeah, tell me later. Thank I can do that sort of. Hi, thanks, guys, for um, coming to talk. Um, I come across and have a lot of um, Muslim friends, and one of the first comments always comes back is. You know, Jesus is in the Quran, right. and they, you know, they say he's a. We identify him as a prophet, but I was curious with your with your expertise. What's what's the main difference between their prophet Jesus and our Jesus? Um, oh well, the, the main difference is that their Jesus is a shell, and ours is a person. Again, like I was saying before, if you ask them anything about Jesus, ask him, so they say he's a prophet, that's great. Ask, say to them, well, what did he teach? Um, what, what was any of his messages? And they will have no idea. Ask him, ask them, where was he born? What's his family? They had, apart from Mary, they'll have no idea. Um, and the main difference is that, again, the Jesus of the Gospels is a full person who walks and talks and loves and hugs and and the miracles have context, and that's the main difference. So it's true of a lot of Islam, actually. Islam is full of a heap of theological terms that they've borrowed from Christianity, but they're a shell with no meaning. Even the term grace. So in the Bismillah, the, the, the sort of saying that they put in front of everything, at the beginning of the Quran, Bismillah, Al-Rahim, blah, blah, blah. The word that Al-Rahim is grace. I remember being in a... Uh, Islamic centre talking to one of their scholars and saying, that word grace, tell me what that word means. And he said, oh, that word, that's an amazing word. That word is too amazing for me to be able to explain to you what that means. Um, and that's because it's, it's a theological word that they've grabbed but it has no meaning to them. No, it's a shell. Messiah as well. You ask a Muslim, what? Oh, he's the Messiah. What is a Messiah? They've got nothing. And, they, and it's not just that the average Muslim has nothing. Islam has nothing because it doesn't have any substance to it about Jesus. But does Jesus appear in the Quran? I've not read the Quran. Does he walk around earth? No, no, he's, no he's mentioned in the Quran. Uh, in those, like the, the sort of details I said before, um, they're just mentioned, but there's no, they're not in context. There's no sort of story around the side of them. It's true of a lot of Christian concepts that are mentioned in the Quran, but they have no real, yeah, no context, no substance. Thank you. And David, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God, so I guess that's the difference there. Um, sorry, a bit loud. Um, I was just thinking that um, um, Islam is about submission, whereas right. I think with uh, my role as a Christian is to tell people the good news, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will work through them. Right. Um, but I don't see that on the uh, Islam side, um, you know, um, do you have to submit to Muhammad and, and if you don't, you know, there's a sort of a black and white situation. Whereas I think with, on the Christian side, you know, once you've heard the gospel, um, you accept it, you don't accept it, there's, there's um, um, you're, you're allowed your opinion, you know. Right. It's not, we, we respect other religions. We might not agree with them, 
but we can ex uh, respect someone's decision to be a Muslim. But I don't see that uh, from a Muslim necessarily to other religions. Is that fair? Uh, depends a little bit who you're talking to. Some, some Islam, and arguably mainstream Islam, is fairly um, universalist at the end. So as long as you're a believer in God, and that includes us, we're a people of the book, Christians, Jews, Muslims, then God might accept you. You might have to burn in hell for a couple of thousand years to get there ultimately, but um, if you're some sense of believer, then in the Muslim mindset there, you're already submitting a little bit. Um, and so there's a variety of ways that Muslims will encounter Christians and how they'll think about you. Some will be very positive towards you, some will be very negative towards you. But the idea of submission, is probably a good place to finish, is that if these guys are... Um, going to start ramping up the music. But the, let me give you an image that I think is a helpful image. I said before, in Islam, God is the lawgiver. God is the king. And they are subjects of the king. And so what does it take to be a good subject? So for us to be a good subject of the queen, what do we need to do? Well, we need to keep the rules. That's about it. As long as we keep the laws, then we're being good subjects. Um, we can sing... God save the Queen and be nice if we did it happily, but it doesn't really matter if we don't, as long as we're keeping the rules. Um, and so in Islam, that's it, you submit. You submit to the rules. You're not even submitting, certainly you're not submitting to Muhammad, but you're not even really at that point submitting to God. You're submitting to God's will. In Islam, it's not God that's revealed, it's God's will that's revealed, and you submit to His will. And we need to be a little careful, because as Christians, we also want to say that we submit to God, because God is our Lord. Jesus is Lord. Um, the difference with us, though, is that we're princes and princesses. So, God is Lord and Father. We obey God, but we also go into the throne room and we sit on his knee and he gives us a hug and we have an intimate relationship with him. The difference, I think, at the end is the relational aspect. In Islam, there's no connection with God beyond doing what he tells you. But for us, uh, we submit to a loving Father. That's the key difference. Richard will be around afterwards if you want to ask some more questions. So, thanks.